take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. Today we're picking up in chapter 4, verse 4. With God's help, we're going to read and study to the end of the chapter, verse 16. It's on page 555. If you've got a Bible on the way in. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, beginning to read in verse 4, and reading and studying together through verse 16. Before we read this word of God together, let's go to him again in prayer and seek his blessing upon our study. Let's pray. Oh, gracious, righteous, glorious Lord, we thank you for this, your word. We pray that you would add your Holy Spirit to the hearts of your people, that as we read it, we would be convicted, we would be led and shepherded, we would be brought to the Savior of our souls. Help us, O oh Lord, to see Jesus to see the way that you are working for your people through him, and help us to rejoice in the community of the church that you have provided for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, beginning to read in verse 4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity, a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there's no end to all his toil. His eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he add a blessing as we study it together today. It was on, uh, it was on March 5th, 1887, uh, a young woman from Massachusetts arrived at her new home in Alabama. The young woman was about 20 years old. Her name was Ann Sullivan, and she was there to begin her new job as a tutor to a deaf and a blind girl named Helen. Upon their uh, first meeting, Anne placed a doll into Helen's arms, and she took the palm of her hand and spelled the letters D-O-L-L into her hand, and that was the beginning of a companionship, a friendship that lasted nearly 50 years. Everywhere the story of Helen Keller is told, the story of Anne Sullivan is woven in. It was Anne who introduced Helen to, uh, to language in its simplest form. 
It was Anne who later spelled lectures into Helen's palms at Radcliffe College. Uh, it was Anne who translated Helen's public speeches so that the masses could hear the voice of the deaf. And when Anne Sullivan died in 1936, Helen Keller wrote these words. She said, my teacher is so near to me that I scarcely think of myself apart from her. I feel that her being is inseparable from my own and that the footsteps of my life are in hers. All the best of me belongs to her. There's not a talent or an inspiration or a joy in me that has not been awakened by her loving touch. Helen Keller wasn't a Christian. Uh, these words are not a reflection of a sanctified friendship, but they are a, a kind of poignant example of, of the statement that Solomon makes here in verse 9, that two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. Uh, not to be insensitive, but those of us who are able-bodied hear, hear these words from someone like Helen Keller, and maybe a connection to Solomon here and two being better than one. And we think, well, of course that's true of those who need help like that, but maybe not like us. It causes us, uh, I hope it causes us, cause me, uh, to wonder how often we think we don't need the kind of help that Helen Keller needed. It makes us wonder how often we're tempted to believe that actually life by ourselves and life for ourselves would be a lot easier it would be a lot simpler. It would be more productive. Well, the main thrust of the passage that we just read today is, is about the blessing of companionship, the blessing of community. It's really another surprising turn in Ecclesiastes, a sort of hopeful upward glance. Here we have another catalog of things that he says are vain. They're striving after the wind. But even here, among this catalog of vanities, he says there's something that's good. Two are better than one. Better contentment than toil. Better fellowship than popularity. It's better to live your life with someone and for someone than to spend your days slaving just to provide greater things for yourself. Genesis tells us it's not good for man to live alone, and far better, I think, that with Ecclesiastes we learn the blessing of believing community. That's what we're going to do today. And... Uh, and Solomon makes his point in three movements, uh, three identifiable uh, pieces in his passage. The first one teaches us about competition or envy. The, the second one teaches us about community. And the third one teaches us about public acclaim. Those are three headings today, competition, community, and acclaim. The first one is competition. Verse 4, then I saw that all toil, all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. It's a statement that is so bold, so unnuanced that we want to push back on it a little bit. Could it really be true, Solomon? Are, are you making your case a little bit too, uh, too black and white? Surely there are those artists. Surely there are those craftsmen who create simply because they love the craft. Surely there are those magnanimous few who, who work and slave to provide good things for other people. Right? We, we want to push back on this, but don't let your objections cloud out the very clear teaching that Solomon is giving us here, and that is that much of what we do in the world, much of our striving, much of our toiling, really is about either catching up with or getting ahead of the people who are next to us. Envy is a powerful motivator. You go to your day job and you put in the extra hours. Why? 
because there are promotions on the line, because there's an office to be moved into. That, that nice corner one on, on the side there, you put in the extra hours so that you can get that extra item on your resume so that you can, you can pad your CV a little bit and people will be impressed with you. You pour over your children and their grades and you push them harder and, and harder. Why? So they can get into a better school. So they can get a better job. So they can provide a better uh, life for themselves. But how do you know that all of those things are good? Because somebody else has them. Because somebody else's kids got into that nice school. Because somebody else has that position and that office. And it's envy, at least at a certain level. Why does your yard look fine until your neighbor cuts his grass? Why is your car sufficient until your sister gets a new one? Why do you feel comfortable in your body until you go to the beach and you see everybody else with their rock-hard abs? I don't know what it is for you. I bet you do. I bet you can think of a list of, of five or six things or areas of your life where success for you really is about doing better than your parents did or about having more than your neighbor has or about going farther than anybody else has ever gone. It's a way of living that sees other people as an obstacle to our own significance. You can trace it all the way back to Cain if you want to. He envied his brother. He envied his brother's sacrifice to the Lord. It's the whole reason that God gave us the Ten Commandment, because he knows that we're all covetors at heart. We want for ourselves what somebody else has acquired. It's envy. And on the other hand, there are people who just say, forget it. <laughs> there are some people who respond to this drive for competition by refusing to play the game. That's the lazy person. And in verse 5, the one who Solomon says folds his hand and eats his own flesh. It's the person who's asleep on the job, literally. They're there in their cubicle, and they're not bold enough to put their head down and drool all over their keyboard, so uh, they just lean back a little bit, they fold their hands in, in their lap, and they, they close their eyes and, and catch a little bit of shut-eye, because there's nothing that is, that is worth staying awake and working for. There's nothing worth the pain of self-exertion. If you have somebody like that in your organization, you know what it's like. You know they are the barnacles on the hull of the ship. They're just along for the ride. Everybody else is putting in the work, and they're just going along and slowing down the whole thing. The same dynamic happens in households. The same dynamic happens in churches, actually. Now, regardless of where this man is, he's at work, he's at home, he's in the church, wherever he is, Solomon calls him a fool. And it's a matter of doing the math. It's simple arithmetic. The lazy person always consumes and consumes and consumes and never produces anything. Eventually, they consume every resource that other people give to them. Eventually, they consume their own future. They consume their own potential to contribute. This is why David Gibson says that idleness is a way to hate your neighbor. Because it leaves you with nothing to give to anyone else. You're only thinking about what you can have and what others can give to you. Well, in verses 4 and 5, we find two wrong answers of how to deal with other people. One is idleness and the other is envy. One is foolish and the other is empty. And so in verse 6, Solomon gives us the right way to approach 
other people. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. I think the word in the ESV ought to be with rather than of. We're not filling our hand with quietness. We have one handful rather than two, but with that one handful we have quietness. It's a call to contentment. Whatever you have, even if you have only a little bit, it's a call to be content with what the Lord has provided. Sure, you could work yourself to death, but why? Is it only to get ahead of the next guy? It's far better to work quietly. Far better to work steadily. Far better to rejoice in what the Lord is providing for you. This is what Solomon has been telling us for the last two chapters, right? Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 13. I perceive that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. But you need to know that what Solomon is describing here and and what he's been uh, coming back to over and over again, what he's describing is a Christian virtue. It is a state of the heart enabled and sustained by the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who draws us out of idleness and out of envy. It is the Holy Spirit who takes the truths of Scripture and applies them to our souls and convinces us that our Father in heaven can be trusted to provide for all of our needs perfectly. It's true that God gives some gifts, He gives some abilities to other people that you don't have. It's true that he allows other people to get bank accounts that you will never amass and accumulate. He's he's provided children or the spouse that you need. He's provided the childlessness or the singleness that you need. He may provide different things in the future. Things we find comfortable, things we find uncomfortable. He may give us health. He may give us sickness. He may give us riches. He may give us poverty. But those are his things to decide and our things to receive. And if you know that, if the Holy Spirit is is working that kind of contentment into your soul, it makes your heart quiet. It makes your heart quiet, especially regarding how you think about other people. Because then it enables you to stop seeing everybody else as a competitor for the things that you want out of life. It enables you, especially in the church, to see them as recipients of grace just the same way that you are. So what if somebody in the church has a better job than you have? So what if somebody in the church is prettier than you are? Or smarter than you are? Or they're more socially adept than you are? So what if their kids got into a better school than yours did? So what if somebody else can sing like an angel and you can barely carry a tune? You are not in competition with those people. Your call is to be faithful where the Lord has called you and to be content with what the Lord provides. But you will ever only do that honestly if you've learned that you can trust the Lord. Only if you know the God who supplies your every need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul said was was the secret to contentment. Even if you only have one handful where it seems like everybody else is overburdened with all the things you want out of life, you can find your quietness in Christ. And if you do, you can trade your competition for contentment. That's the first point, is teaching about competition. But all that's really leading into what Solomon is about to say next about community. Take a look again at the scenario in verse 8. There's one person 
one more vanity under the sun. He says, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there's no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches. If you just stop there, you could almost see this as a sort of American success story. Here is the industrious type. Here's the one who works his fingers to the bone. Here is the one that if you want to find him, you know exactly where he is. He's in his office. He's in the boardroom closing a deal. He's on the phone negotiating better terms. He's always working, always improving. He's the first one to show up. He's the last one to leave. He doesn't envy his neighbors because they don't have anything that he hasn't already got. On a street corner in Batavia, Illinois, of all places, is a 10-foot-tall bronze statue. And this statue is of a man that looks like a bodybuilder, this enormous muscle-clad man with a chisel in one hand and a mallet in the other, and he's chiseling himself out of a block of granite. And the statue is called the Self-Made Man. And the artist, Bobby Carlyle, described it by saying he's carving himself out of stone. He's carving his character. He's carving his future. What an inspiration, right? Well, if you look at verse 8 in just the right angle, it almost looks like that. It almost looks like this success story. But really, you keep reading and you realize Solomon is, is telling us about a tragedy. The emphasis on this, uh, this uh, picture here, this man, is that it, it falls from beginning to end on the fact that he is utterly alone. The Hebrew is explicit. He's not just a person, but he's one person. He has no one else. He has no brother. He has no son. That is, he has nobody to help him. He has nobody to inherit what he's got when he's done. And there he is working so busily that he never stops to ask that all-important question, who is this for? He doesn't have to ask that question because verse 4 already told us it's for him. It's so that he can lay his head on his beautifully plush pillow at night and, and console himself with the fact that he is ahead of everybody else. It's an unhappy business, this toiling, this striving to provide great things for yourself. Solomon says there's something better. Two, he says. Two are better than one. Now, my guess, uh, I'm neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, my guess is that the last time you heard Ephesians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, read in a church setting, you were staring at a beautiful woman in a white dress. Right? This has become one of our quintessential wedding passages. Right? The one that we read just before the vows because it teaches us about one man and one woman taking on life with the help of God at the center. And actually there's a, a really good justification for applying this passage in that way. There's a long history of applying this passage in that way. But to really understand what Solomon's doing and the point here, we need to expand our thinking beyond just marriage, beyond just a husband and a wife. We need to see the blessing of companionship in all of life. In fact, in the original context, these verses speak to something like having a business partner or maybe like a brother in arms. All the nouns, all the pronouns in verses 9 to 12 are masculine. This is talking about two men who are together uh, and they are maybe on a journey. They're helping, they're supporting, they're defending one another. If one falls down, the other can help him up. If one is attacked, the other can fight with him and for him. Even the language of two lying down together and keeping warm fits the image of a, a journey or a battlefield situation. 
right? In the trenches in Flanders and the foxholes in Vietnam, the soldiers often had to sleep back to back or huddled up next to one another, keeping out the elements. It's the same idea here. If, if one lays down by himself, one lies down, uh, he's going to be cold. But two can keep warm. The point, in these verses, the Solomon is depicting a group of people who were on a mission together. There are at least two of them, but three would be better. The more the merrier. Keep on, keep on bringing them in. He's pointing us in the direction of a community. And they're striving together. They've got this common objective. They're, they're working for a shared purpose. And because they're together, they have strength and resilience and safety and encouragement. Because they're together, the, the goal that is impossible for just one of them is possible with more than one of them. And here's something amazing. Solomon in this book has repeated his lamentation that under the sun, all of our toil has no gain. We get nothing out of it. But here he says that where two work together, they have a good return. Here's something positive. Here's something good. Community changes everything. And it does sound like a marriage, by the way. As long as the third strand isn't a third person, as long as it's God uniting them together, this, this sounds like a marriage. But it also sounds an awful lot like the church. Right, do you ever stop to think about how often Christ, through his apostles, gives us commands in his word that are impossible to fulfill by ourselves as believers? If we only can find ourselves, do a, do a word study later in your Sabbath practice. If we only can find ourselves to the one anothering passages, we could fill months worth of sermons on these things. Right? The New Testament tells us that we ought to love one another and teach one another and build one another up. It tells us we ought to serve one another. We ought to forgive one another. We ought to bear with one another's burdens. We could keep going. We could keep going on and on. But the point is that God has designed our faith to flourish only as we work together in his kingdom. He has designed Christianity to function only within the context of the communion of the saints. Don't push it too far. Don't get me wrong. Community is not the gospel. Right? The goal of, of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is not just to be joined to a group where we can feel a part of something that's bigger than us. That could be as simple as identity politics. Community is not the gospel, but community is the unavoidable conclusion of our life in Christ. Everyone who is joined to Jesus is united to a new family of brothers and sisters in him. There is no Christian who is an island to himself. There are no self-made believers. Now let's try to apply this perhaps in a concrete way. All of this means that if you are a Christian, your presence among God's people is not an optional feature. Right? I remember the days, my first car, you... You didn't have a button to put the window up and down. You had a little crank that you, you did like this, and it would go up and down. Because I bought the base model. I didn't have any of the optional features. I bought it secondhand. Right? But if you were willing, if you were able, you could go that extra step. You could, you could have the windows that go up and down all by themselves. It's an optional feature. Christianity in community is the base model. Right? It's not an add-on. It's not something that you go to the dealership and say, well, I, I think I'll have my Christianity without anybody else. I think I'll, I'll just do this. Right? 
Christianity in community is not an optional feature. God has designed your faith so that you need a group of believers to pick you up when you've fallen down in your faith. He has designed Christianity so that you need other people to warm your heart when your faith grows cold. He has designed Christianity to help defend you from the temptations that you're prone to. When you're in believing community, you can go to other people, you can speak to them, you can get encouragement from them. And he's also gifted you. Each one of you, in, in various ways, in different life stages, he's, he's given you gifts so that you can offer the same kind of help to the Christians all around you. Think of it this way. We all come to Christ and to life in Christianity, to, to, to life in Christ, we all come blind and deaf to the things of God. And here you are. The Lord has put you within a society of Ann Sullivan's. And they can take your untrained hands and they can spell the gospel into your palms by their life experience and by the things that they have seen and the faithfulness of the Lord they've experienced. Yet how many of us come and go from a single worship service each week with no engagement with Christianity, with a Christian community for the other 166 hours every week? And we somehow expect we can keep growing in Jesus the way that we ought to. We slide into a service just before it starts, and then when it's done, we say our hellos, we make a little small talk, see you next week. In the meantime, Wednesday, your life feels like it's falling apart, and you've fallen into that sin again, or you've gotten that news that you didn't want to hear, and there's nobody in the church that you feel like you can even call who would want to hear from you or want to know what's going on in your life. Thursday, when the prayer email goes out for somebody else, you don't follow through and make that call to somebody else or send that card that you know you probably should. And then when there are really momentous things in your life, what do you do? You imbibe the advice of your, your co-workers and your roommates who don't even know the Lord, and there's nobody else in the church that you call who's a mature Christian believer, brother and sister, and say, what should I do here? What's the wisdom that I need in this situation? And you keep going in that cycle until all of it feels like it's going to be too much. And then we start showing up for our 90 minutes on Sunday, looking askance at the people who are across the aisle from us. Wondering why everybody else seems so happy, why everybody else seems so blessed by the Lord, and we're not getting any of that. And before you know it, it leads you exactly back to verses 4 and 5. Somewhere on the verge between either spinning your wheels harder to try and get the spiritual things you think you need or just canning it all. Because who cares? Right? Nobody's paying attention. Nobody knows you. You, you don't have a vested interest in, in a community. Does any of that sound familiar? If that sounds like you, dear Christian, listen to Solomon. Two are better than one. A whole church full is even better. A community of believers where the Lord binds his people together, that's a threefold cord that is not, not quickly broken. Let me say that if you're a believer here at Redeemer, God has given you a gift, and that gift is the other people sitting in this room. Not just the pastor, not just the elders, but brothers and sisters in Christ. He's given you a Christian community. A room filled with people who are not in spiritual competition to you. Everyone who's trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ has been redeemed by the same gift of his sacrifice. 
We've all been enlisted into the same mission. And that mission is gathering God's people out of the world and growing up together into him who is the head, even Jesus Christ. Let me ask you what kind of difference you think it would make to your faith if you left today and got a fellowship luncheon after worship. We're going to sit down. We're going to sit across from a lot of people. We're going to have a lot of small talk, perhaps. What difference would it make in your faith if you sat down and made a commitment to gather with somebody else for a coffee, for a walk, for a conversation where you could share and, and hear what's going on in their lives, hear what the Lord is doing, where you could share the struggles that you've got with somebody else in this congregation? What kind of difference would it make, do you think? What kind of encouragement could you offer to them? What kind of support could you find in a brother or sister in this room? What kind of difference would it make if next week, instead of sleeping in, you were here for Sunday school as well? And there in that class, you heard somebody other than the pastor speak about something that you've been wrestling with for a very long time, and actually maybe for the first time, they put it in a way that, that resonates with your soul, that makes you re-examine the grace of God. Makes you thankful all over again for what Christ has done for you. What kind of difference would that make? Such a little thing, just a small thing, being in community and in conversation with other believers. What difference would it make in your faith, your daily faith, if you were a part of a regular small group study? Or if you started a regular small group study? Where you join together midweek where most of the, the business of your life happens in the middle of your days with other believers so you could pray together, so you could struggle together, so you could encourage one another together. What kind of difference would it make? Let me challenge you to try and find out. Let me challenge you to test Solomon's theory. Now there's a lot of vanity in the book of Ecclesiastes, but it's not here. Two are better than one, he says. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. And that's especially true in Christ church. Community takes our labors and gives them a lasting purpose. I said there was going to be a third point, but we're just going to give it the briefest mention. And that's partly because I've already covered the main point of the text. It's also partly because verses 13 to 16 are kind of like a puzzle that nobody knows what to do with. Regardless, the, the final point does have to do with a claim. We can see that clearly enough. The basic narrative is pretty clear. There is an old king. He's unteachable. He's intractable. And there's this wise young man, even though he's very poor. That explains the prison sentence, by the way. And these days, uh, prisoners... Uh, if you were a, a violent offender, you were murdered, you were executed. If you were a person in debt, well, you spent time in prison. So here's this young man, very wise, though very poor, and through wisdom, this young man rises through the ranks of society, and he eventually takes the old king's place. And then in verse 15, here's the puzzle. Verse 15, it seems like there is perhaps another youth. Notice the footnote in the ESV says that he's a second one. There's another youth who now rises to take the first youth's place, and it's a cycle of secession that's happening in this kingdom. An old man, then a young man, then another young man. And it's the last verse, verse 16, that really twists the knife. It says, there is no end of all the people, all of whom he led, that those who come later will not rejoice in him. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. What's the point? The point is that popularity is fickle, right? 
Everybody loves the king while he's winning, but nobody remembers the king who accomplished nothing. And as soon as the latest star begins to get wrinkles, Hollywood always finds another one. Phil Riken says it this way. He says, in the end, everyone turns out to be expendable. All the more reason to pour ourselves and our labors and our relationships into something that's greater and longer lasting than we are. You know, some of you have seen it go in the other direction. You don't have to be a king to chase popularity or acclaim. It happens in small ways in social media all the time. This sort of false community that makes us think that people are really with us until you say an unpopular thing and then you're out of the public eye. Right? It comes and it goes and popularity is fickle. Some of you have seen it in the workplace. You've seen fully grown, educated adults all thrown together in an organization where there are accolades and there are titles on the line and what do they do? Well, you watch them posture. You watch them backstab. You watch them form alliances with the people they think they can use to get ahead. You've watched people lose their integrity just trying to fit in with some kind of version of, of community that they thought would give them something greater. When in reality, it's another form of envy, isn't it? I'll use you and you'll be my stepping stone and I'll get what I need for myself. Now, popularity is fickle, but in the church, we're supposed to be a different kind of community. We're meant to be a community built on the declaration that we all come to Christ as beggars. We all come seeking to serve one another and to bear with one another in Christ. And the question is, what kind of community will you be invested in? Where are you going to spend your time and your labors and your friendships? Where are you going to find those, uh, those brothers or sisters in arms who can come alongside of you and pick you up? Two is better than one. And the right companions give our labors lasting purpose. What gain is there under the sun? Well, Paul gives us the answer, 1 Corinthians. Therefore, my brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Would you join me in prayer? Gracious God, we thank you for this, your word. We pray that you would teach us the value of the church where you have placed us. We thank you for the blessing of one another sitting in this room. And we thank you that only because we are in Christ, we are one with one another. You have joined us into one body, one new man in place of the two or the many. You've made us your people. You've given us peace. Oh, Lord, give us community. Not because of our merits or our goodness, Lord, we're an odd bunch of people to all find one another, but, but you are good. And you lead us to yourself, and in leading us to yourself, you lead us to one another. Thank you for the church. Help us to be your people. And we pray that there would be a reward for our toil, that we would grow up together into him who is the head, even Christ. We ask in Jesus' name.